Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brook and this is Eyes Only. Sitting alone in his office, the silence is broken by the rhythmic sound of a coded message coming through. Bill Casey sets down the intelligence report he is reading. He looks at what has just come in. He stops and he stares at it. It is a simple three-letter code that repeats multiple times, possibly the most important message he would ever receive. It reads, AOP. He knows well what those three letters stand for. They scream volumes at him. He is the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he has no idea what is going on. AOP stands for Attack on Principle. The coded phrase meaning that the President of the United States is under attack. Joe Trainer and Tim McCarthy flip a coin. The loser of this bet will determine who has to go out into the cold March rain. The Secret Service needs another body to work President Reagan's detail that day. McCarthy loses the bet. He heads off to another day of being in the line of fire. Today he stands out from the rest of the group. He is wearing a bluish-gray cotton blend suit. It is brand new. The nicest suit he has ever owned. It is about to get soaking wet because he has to go to work. Joe Trainer heads to the dry and warm White House Secret Service Communications Command Post Center. McCarthy climbs into a convertible and follows the president's car as they wind their way through Washington, D.C. streets, heading for the Hilton Hotel. Just as luck, the plastic roof of the car is leaking. Joe Trainer sits in a 12 by 15 room directly beneath the Oval Office. In front of him are a row of radios, police scanners, and a bank of special phones with dedicated lines. It is a normal day. There is no protective intelligence that anyone is stalking the president or that any threats have been made against him in recent history. At 2.27 p.m., Ronald Reagan exits the Washington Hotel. Surrounding him are three layers of protection. On his outer perimeter are police. In the middle layer are Secret Service. Directly next to the president, Secret Service agents form the inner perimeter around Reagan. McCarthy walks next to the president as they make their way to the motorcade. A crowd surrounds them as they move. It all happens fast. The sharp crack of a twenty-two revolver. The body of Press Secretary James Brady falls to the ground next to McCarthy. McCarthy scans the crowd looking for the weapon. He needs to get between the line of fire. Next to him, a police officer cries out as he is shot in the neck. That's when McCarthy sees the gun, its barrel sticking out between two TV cameras. The gunman has a clear shot at the president's head. It all unfolds in a split second. McCarthy knows he can't make it in time to stop it. At that moment, a civilian saves the president's life. Alfred Antonucci hears the first two shots. A union leader, hoping to get a glance at the president in person, now finds himself standing directly behind a presidential assassin. 
He sees the flame coming out of the barrel of the gun and dives toward it, hitting the gunman in the back, causing him to lose his aim. McCarthy turns toward the barrel. He now stands between the assassin and his target. Spreading his arms out, he shields Reagan. The press cameras roll, capturing the whole scene as McCarthy takes a bullet to the chest. Behind him, Secret Service agent Jerry Parr throws Reagan into the motorcade. He lands hard on top of him, covering him with his body. As the motorcade speeds off, McCarthy lies on the ground fighting for his life. Blood soaks through his clothing. He is not wearing a vest. Chaos ensues. Agents pull Uzis from briefcases and secure the area. The assassin lies under a pile of bodies, pinning him down. The whole scene unfolds in under two seconds. Six shots have been fired. Three people lay on the ground shot. Inside the president's motorcade, Agent Jerry Parr runs his hands through the president's hair and under his suit jacket, searching him for signs of blood. His hands come back clean. In the White House, Joe Trainer sits, quietly listening. He knows things have gone wrong, yet he doesn't know what has happened. Protocol instructs him not to speak, but to keep his ears open. In front of him lays the direct line to George Washington Hospital. The phone you pick up when the president has been shot. Over the radio, he hears Agent Jerry Parr's voice. Rawhide is okay. The code name for the president, a name given to him due to his movie star career as an old Western actor. Parr is relieved. He served during JFK's assassination. In the back of his mind, the thought not again is racing. His relief dissipates as Reagan begins coughing up foamy blood. Reagan tells Parr he thinks his rib is broken. The truth is he has been shot. A bullet has ricocheted off the side of the car and entered intact into his side under the armpit. Puncturing his lung, it now rests a mere quarter inch away from his heart. At the White House, Trainer hears Parr's voice come over the radio. We need to go to the hospital, he says. Joe Trainer picks up the phone and makes the dreaded call no Secret Service agent ever wants to make. The stability of the nation now lies in question. The principal has been hit. The president walks into George Washington University Hospital on his own power, waving to people outside on his way in. Not long after he enters, his legs give out from under him and he collapses in the lobby. Back in front of the hotel, the devastation shocks the nation. White House Press Secretary James Brady has been shot in the head, directly above his eye. A DC police officer has been shot in the neck the bullet still lodged next to his spine. Tim McCarthy has a bullet in his chest. Everyone is still alive, but James Brady's brain cavity has exploded, and no one knows if he's going to make it. A direct hit has been struck at the seat of power. Everyone wants to know why. There's a unique and strange situation that developed during that day. Bill Casey and the president's cabinet need to know what the nature of this attack is. Is it an isolated incident or part of a deeper strategy from either the Russians or another enemy? 
two Soviet nuclear-capable submarines have been detected relatively close to the U.S., just off the eastern seaboard. If this is the beginning of something larger, something more insidious, there is a problem. Who is in charge? The equalizer of the nuclear age is the ability to launch a nuclear attack within minutes. For a short amount of time, there is confusion on that very protocol. At George Washington Hospital, the president's suit is being cut off of him as he is prepped for surgery. All of his belongings are confiscated by the FBI during the process. Inside Reagan's wallet is a plastic card similar to a credit card in size. It is the gold codes, the sequence required to authorize a nuclear strike. His wallet is separated from him and taken to FBI headquarters. He is no longer in control. To understand what has to happen, you need to understand the elaborate system that is in danger of breaking down. The majority of the U.S.'s nuclear defense policy rests on the ability to launch an attack at a moment's notice. The belief is that no nuclear nation would be foolish enough to launch a nuclear attack on the U.S. because there is one assured response, a counter-launch almost immediately. The policy has a name. It is called Mutually Assured Destruction. It has been our main line of defense in the nuclear age. Following the president and the vice president at all times is a military officer who carries a bag that looks a lot like a briefcase. The bag is called the nuclear football. It is the device used to initiate a launch. There is a video from the day of the shooting. It is TV camera footage. If you know what to look for, you will see a man carrying the nuclear football trying to reach the motorcade as Reagan is being thrown into it. He doesn't get there. The motorcade speeds off, leaving the football behind. This kind of separation is a breach of protocol and something that is cause for alarm. The officer would eventually arrive at the hospital. I know this amount of time seems trivial. The system is intended to not allow for it. It takes something as great as an assassination attempt to allow for this to unfold. It wouldn't be long before Reagan is sedated and under the knife. He is no longer in control. The Nuclear Launch Authority is designed to pass to the Vice President. Upon incapacitation of the sitting President, the Vice President immediately takes up the watch. Vice President George H. Bush is traveling to Texas at the time, and for some reason, communication with him is unreliable. He received the message that Rawhide was unhit. No one could be sure if he was receiving the message that the president has been shot. At this time is when the strain over who is able to authorize a nuclear strike and who is calling the shots comes into question. In the White House press room, Deputy Press Secretary Larry Speaks is asked a question by CBS reporter Leslie Stahl. Who is currently running the government? He is asked. Deputy Press Secretary Larry Speaks is left with a tough question, a crucial one the nation is wondering. He is standing there as the man who has to answer because his boss, Press Secretary James Brady, has just been shot in the head. He responds by saying, I cannot answer that question at this time. Moments later, he has passed a note from the Secretary of State, Alexander Haig. The note tells him to leave the room. Haig enters 
and makes a statement that is not only factually incorrect, but also very controversial. Take a listen to what he says. Uh, now, if you have some questions, I'd be happy to Crisis take them. Crisis management, that's what it wouldn't be effect when this Crisis management is in effect. Who is making the decisions for the government right now? Who's making the decisions? Constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state in that order. And should the president decide he wants to tr transfer the helm to the vice president, he, he will do so. As of now, I am in control here in the White House pending return of the vice president and in, in close touch with him. If something came up, I would check with him, of course. He is wrong, and most people involved knew so. The Secretary of State was fourth in the line of succession. His statements would be even more problematic given his tense and often combative relationship with the president. To be fair, this type of thing doesn't happen very often, and the communication issues with the vice president, as well as the confusion around Reagan's medical status, complicated things. For quite a while after the shooting, all news media were reporting that he had not been shot. There is a moment when ABC News anchor Frank Reynolds discovers the truth. In the background, you can hear gunfire as ABC News plays footage from the shooting. It is at this moment that Frank Reynolds receives the news that one of those shots has hit the president the condition of those who were hit uh, during this uh, obviously attempted assassination uh, of the president. Uh, that did not occur. Mr. Reagan was not hit. He was bounced around as the Secret Service agents uh, maneuvered or flung, I think is probably the right word, flung him into the car to get him out of there. The president then went to the George Washington University Hospital where those who were hit were taken. They include Jim Brady, who is the president's press secretary, a Secret Service agent and a policeman. We do not know their condition, but uh, quite obviously, as soon as we find out anything more, we're going to... Uh, here, we have a report uh, that Lynn Nofziger, who was the president's advisor for political... Michael Deaver just came Yeah, here. for political affairs. Lynn Nofziger has told reporters at the hospital that the president was not wounded. He was wounded. My God! He was... The president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. He was hit in the left chest, according to this, but he is in stable condition. And the okay. typed information I have is that he is okay. Speak up. The president was hit. One, my God, the president was hit. All this that we've been telling you uh, is incorrect. We now must... Uh, uh, redraw this entire uh, tragedy in, in different terms. The president was hit today. He was hit in the left chest, but we are told he is all right. He is at George Washington University Hospital. It is an emotional broadcast. Anchors at the time were known for not breaking face, and this is a very understandably genuine reaction from Frank Reynolds. It is similar to when Walter Cronkite broke down on live TV reporting that JFK had been killed. These kinds of real reactions are rare and leave lasting impressions. The media is told that the president is not in danger. There is a golden rule. The center of power must never go down. The reality is he is very close to death. 
Reagan's blood pressure, typically at 140, is down to 60. He has lost a lot of blood and is in shock. They stabilize him enough to begin a procedure called a thoractomy, meaning an open chest cavity surgery to remove the bullet. While the doctors work, they are unaware of what they are truly dealing with. Officers with the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Department raid the hotel room of the man who pulled the trigger. They find something sinister, an indication that the threat is not over. They find a box of 22 caliber long rifle Devastator bullets, bullets that are specifically engineered to explode upon impact. Each bullet is filled with small aluminum and lead azide explosive charges designed to explode. Resting inside the president's chest is a mini explosive. The heat from the surgical devices working to save his life could very well set the unexploded bullet off. Mid-operation, the surgeons are notified that their lives are now in danger as well. They keep working anyway. As they operate on the president, law enforcement begin to piece together what kind of threat they were dealing with. In the hotel room of John Hinckley Jr., investigators find a two-page letter. There is another victim, someone who has been suffering in silence, a young actress named Jodie Foster. In a letter addressed, Dear Jody." The man who had just shot Ronald Reagan professed his twisted version of what he viewed as love for a woman he had been tormenting. Hinckley's letter states clearly that in just a few hours from him sitting down to write it, he was going to shoot the president. He writes, Jody, I would abandon this idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I am going ahead with this attempt now is because I just cannot wait any longer to impress you. It is in the same hotel room investigators find cassette tapes made by Hinckley, recordings of phone calls he had made to Jodie Foster. John Hinckley Jr. is a stalker and Jody had been his victim. For months, he had been harassing her while she attended Yale. The recordings of these phone calls are hard to find. There is one that you can find. It aired on a CNN documentary. The audio quality is poor in nature, yet one thing you cannot miss is the distress in Jodie Foster's voice. There's a disturbing moment when Hinckley tells her that he is not dangerous. Take a listen to it. Who is this? Oh no. Who is this? Who is this? John. Oh no, not you again. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? But do, do me a really big favor. You understand why I can't, you know, carry on these conversations with people? I don't know. You understand that it's dangerous and it's not done. Not fair. It's rude. Oh, All right. Well, I understand that. It's just it's the same thing. Okay. Uh, so you just don't ever want to be tired. No, it's well, really so nice talking to you. 
John Hinckley Jr.'s obsession with Jody would lead him to eventually leave her alone. He would soon begin stalking someone else, someone he intended to kill. In October of 1980, Hinckley was following the campaign trail of the U.S. president, not Ronald Reagan, but Jimmy Carter. In Dayton, Ohio, he would be standing six feet away from Jimmy Carter. This story continues on my next episode. Thanks for listening.